Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Aquaphoenix Scientific. Aquaphoenix, a manufacturer of test kits, reagents, and chemical feed and control equipment. Additionally, they are a distributor of thousands of products for top industry brands for the industrial water treatment market, making them the true one source for literally anything you might need. Folks, how many purchase orders do you need to write in order to get everything you need for your field test kit? Well, with Aquaphoenix, that is just one call to them, one purchase order, one shipment, and you can have everything you need from all the different manufacturers. Give the fine folks at Aquaphoenix a call today or visit them by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash APS. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And Scaling Up Nation, thank you for tuning in. I have to say, so many privileges are bestowed upon me because I have this podcast, because you choose to listen to this podcast. I have learned so much doing this podcast for over the past four years. And I have been able to meet so many people, many of you out there that are listening, I would have never been able to meet. There wouldn't have been an opportunity for it had this podcast not been started, had people like you not shared this podcast with your friends and coworkers. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for continuing to do that. At the recent AWT, I got to meet so many more people that I didn't know before. And you came up to me because this podcast is something you listen to on a regular basis. It's helped you do something. It's maybe redefined how you do work. I love those stories. Thank you for every single one of you that shared one of those stories at the AWT convention. Something the podcast has also done is it's allowed me to meet some people that have really helped me with certain items that I would have never been able to meet before. And specifically what I'm talking about is the authors of the books that I read. And I really enjoy reading. Now, I don't enjoy reading for pleasure. I enjoy reading, or maybe I should say I endure reading so I can do something with it. And I love reading personal help books. I love reading business books. And my goal is to find at least one handle that I can pull out of that and carry into my day-to-day to make my day-to-day better. Now, we don't go very many episodes without me talking about the seven habits of highly effective people. And I hope you're not tired of me talking about that book, but I, I talk about it so much because it is so foundational in who I am, how I make decisions, what I do with myself personally, how I work with others publicly. It has just created a framework for me to process all sorts of decisions. Well, back on episode 175, I shared with you a process that I do each and every week, each and every day, and that has not changed for years. It has become so automatic for me. In fact, after I told everybody about my process on episode 175, I had several people call me or write into me and ask me, how, how do I make it sound so simple because they were struggling with it? Well, the simple fact was it wasn't simple. It was very difficult for me to start doing, but because I did it for so long, I got to the point where I don't even think about it. So if you're interested in that process, you can go back to episode 175. My point with all of this is, is that I was doing the same thing the same way and I was getting the same results. And I didn't really challenge that the results could be any different. And I think that's really the key. When you start challenging how things are to what things could be, that's where you're going to make monumental strides in getting better. And one way you can do that is to put yourself in a group of people that are challenging you to do that. That's one of the things we do in the Rising Tide Mastermind. 
Another thing we do is we read books with each other. Now, that's something that I do on my own, but I know a lot of people don't do that on their own or they don't know what books to read. And that's something that we bring into the Rising Tide Mastermind. Well, one of the books we recently read in the Rising Tide Mastermind was a book called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. And in the book, he redefines several things that I always thought about time management. In fact, he changed the way that I look at my process that I explain in episode 175. And having the podcast, meeting all of you, and being able to speak with an author that just gave me so much in his book, and I was able to ask him some more questions that you're going to hear to really make that book come to life for me, it's all because of this podcast. It's all because you listen to this podcast, and I want to thank you for that. And because of all of that, we get to interview Rory Vaden. Scout Up Nation, my guest today is Rory Vaden, author of Take the Stairs and Procrastinate on purpose, and so many other things that we're going to find out. Rory, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Hey, Trace. Thanks for having me, man. I'm loving this. I'm excited to be here. You've been so kind and generous of sharing and promoting my books and the stuff. And so it's just it's just great to meet you, man. I'm honored to, to have had some of your attention over, over the last couple of years. Well, likewise, uh, I I am a, I'm going to say a huge fan. I thought about time management one way. We can't have this conversation and not talk about the seven habits. So that's coming up just to just to warn you. And <laughs> right. you created an entirely different dimension for not only me but everybody to think about that time management matrix. But I, I don't want to quite go there yet. I am very thankful for that. We are going to go there. Teaser, hook. Little teaser, that's coming up. <laughs> so, but before we do, um, can you tell the Scaling Up Nation, who is Rory Vaden? Oh, man. Well, Rory is a ruggedly handsome, uh, brilliantly smart, uh, fabulous- And extremely specimen, modest. Specimen of a man, extremely modest. <laughs> um, I, I mean, when you ask who is Rory Vaden, I would say I, you know- First of all, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm now a dad of two little munchkins. So I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. A lot of people would describe me as an entrepreneur, a, you know, a speaker, an author, etc. But I honestly think of myself more as a, a student, just a big student. I'm constantly infatuated with what makes people influential and successful. And that started because I grew up without any influence, without any money, without much. Um, I was raised by a single mom and uh, she had been divorced twice by the time she was 22. Single mom of two kids, no college degree. We lived in a trailer park in Boulder, Colorado at the time. I just kind of grew up really what it was. It was like, I wanted Air Jordans and I got Air Jordash. Um, and I wanted, you know, I wanted box cereal and I got bagged cereal and I wanted to be the cool kid, but I got made fun of. And I, you know, I wore sweatpants like every day to school and I just, you know, shaved my head all the time because we could do that at home. And like, you know, there were just things like that, that I started wondering why, like, why do some people have more than others? Uh, is it just a matter of luck, like, uh, or what happens? And so I've been extremely interested in the psychology and the study of success and influence my entire life. And I, I ended up getting a black belt when I was 10 years old. That was a first big goal and dream and pursuit of mine. My mom always told me, she said, you will go to college and you will get a scholarship because there's no way I'm ever going to be able to pay for it. And so she planted that idea in my mind when I was young and I ended up getting a full academic scholarship to the University of Denver there, I studied accounting and management and leadership. I uh, got my MBA at the same time. I, I got my undergrad degree. I was involved in direct sales. And direct sales was really where I learned a lot about self-discipline and success early on. And then from there, I got into speaking. And, you know, that's kind of like, but that's like the, the, early, the early years of Rory Vaden, I guess, all, all bundled up. 
Well, you mentioned speaking, and in your book, you talk a little bit about this, but I find this fascinating because I was involved just a little bit with Toastmasters. When I originally got in sales, that was the recommendation. Hey, go to Toastmasters, learn how to, to work an audience, learn how to tell a story, and, and Toastmasters is the place to go for that. And by the way, Scaling Up Nation, if you have not checked up Toastmasters, and probably some of the best uh, speech training that, that you could get, I think you'd probably agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Toastmasters is not for professional speakers, which is interesting because it's it's like it's for people who just speak as part of their everyday living. But they have, for me, I wanted to be a professional speaker. Like my dream was to be in auditoriums with thousands of people and like, you know, be the guy up on stage. And they have a contest called the World Championship of Public Speaking. And so, you know, I was 20, 22 years old. I had a lot of, a fair bit of success in direct sales. I, I made about a quarter million dollars while I was in college. And I was, I was going door to door in the summers and recruiting students to come with me. It was a very entrepreneurial thing. It was really difficult. And, and anyways, I left that and wanted to become a professional speaker. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe if I won the World Championship of Public Speaking, that would give me the credibility that I need to, you know, launch a speaking career. And so I, I went out, I spoke 304 times. Uh, I spent uh, thousands of hours watching film. I spent tens of thousands of dollars getting speech coaching. I was, you know, went through dozens of different courses and read all these books. And I made it to the top 10 speakers in the world in 2006 out of 25,000 contestants. And I lost. But then the next year, I went back again in 2007, and that was the year that I, well, I lost again actually, but I lost higher. Um, I came in second, and I was the so I was the world champion of public speaking, first runner up. I was the youngest person to ever do that. Shortly after that, I was at a conference, and a gentleman introduces himself to me, and he said, "Oh, you're Rory Vaden. You're the Toastmaster kid, right?" And I was like, "Well, yes, sir, I am." And I said, "I'm sorry, do I?" I don't know you. And he said, he said, my name is Zig Ziglar. How about that? Uh-huh. And so Zig introduced himself to me. We became friends. And then he he personally mentored me over the next you know, three, four years up until uh, he had a fall and he started to lose his short-term memory. And that was a few years before he died, which was now a few years ago. So that was a, a big, you know, that was kind of like Toastmasters. And right at that same time, I had finished graduate school and a guy that I had met in college, we decided to start a company together that we're, you know, we we're like, we're going to be the best speakers in the world. And we're going to do these large seminars and like, we'll have hundreds of people come to these events. And so we started that company. He had a girl that he had grown up with that he knew. And so she started the company with us. So that's 2006. Well, we ended up growing that company to eight figures. We had 200 people. I ended up marrying that girl. Her name is AJ. And then we sold that company in 2018. And then uh, it was a sales training company, sales coaching. And then um, AJ and I, so we exited in 2018. And then a few years ago, we started Brand Builders Group, which is which is what we do now. So that that takes you the full st the full story of Rory right there. I love it. Well, tell us a little bit about what Brand Builders does. Yeah, so Brand Builders Group helps mission-driven messengers to build and monetize their personal brand. And so we believe, and now we have data to prove, we just, we just conducted this nationwide uh, independent research study. AJ actually led it. She's our CEO at Brand Builders Group. I'm more like the CMO, but she partnered with this independent research firm studying what U.S. consumers, it was a U.S.-based study, think about personal brands. And what we found is that the average U.S. citizen says they're 74% more likely to trust somebody who has built a personal brand. And so it's still in the vein of influence. I would describe my, my whole life as the study of influence. And I think of influence with four levels. So level one is influencing yourself. That's where my first book, Take the Stairs, was all about you know, overcoming procrastination and building your self-discipline. That's influencing yourself. My second book was Procrastinate on Purpose, which is influencing your time, which is, you know, basically it's still influencing yourself. So that's all level one. Then level two influence, we, you know, you could think of this as sort of four concentric circles, is influencing another person. 
which is the world of sales. You know, and I I got exposed to that. My mom sold Mary Kay when I was a when I was a kid, so I grew up knowing more about makeup than I do about cars. <laughs> um, and I learned about sales from the time I was young. And then when I was in college, you know, I went door to door for five summers and recruited students to do that, and broke several different records. And that was really about sales. And then the company that we built was sales. So we spent twelve years just understanding how do you influence another human. What can you say and do and think and 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 how do you behave to influence another person voluntarily? And then level three influence is influencing a small group of people. So I would call that leadership. You know, it's 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 leading a team. We spent a fair bit of time studying that. My degree in college uh, actually got an official degree in leadership and an MBA. And then obviously being an entrepreneur now, my whole life pretty much. It's all about leading teams and how do you influence a group of people? And then, so what I would say with Brand Builders Group, I would describe Brand Builders Group as level four influence. Level four influence is not influencing just yourself or another person or a team, but influencing an entire community. It is mobilizing an army of fans or volunteers or a huge social media following. And so we work with, some of the very biggest podcasters in the world, like Lewis Howes from the School of Greatness is over 400 million downloads. We work with several New York Times bestselling authors. We work with people on the cover of Time Magazine and billionaires who are extending their personal brand. Now, those clients represent about 5% of the people that we work with. Most of the people we work with are just starting on that journey where maybe they've been an influential person, maybe they've been a top salesperson, maybe they've been a successful leader, a great entrepreneur, and now they're trying to expand their influence to reach out into a community and mobilize a, a mass army. So that's what Brand Builders Group does. And so it's not always an obvious connection for people as to like, you know, why did you do a TED Talk that went viral about multiplying time? You've got a book on self-discipline, a company on sales that you sold, and now, you know, that you and your wife sold and now you and your wife are doing personal branding. And, and the, the, the through line is just influence. And influence is the psychology of moving someone to action. And that includes moving yourself to action. So that's the, that's the not so apparent through line, I would say, of our companies, our body of work, and honestly, just my, my curious fascination it makes a lot of sense now that you've tied everything together. And speaking of influence, I alluded to this at the very top of the show, you've really influenced me to think about time differently. And, and I'm one of those guys, I was, I was taught the seven habits of highly effective people with a company I worked with back when I was 19. I, I didn't realize what a gift that was that the company was giving me. And I have referred to that throughout my entire life. I've led other people through that program. And I've always thought about time with how do I make sure I'm always doing the important things? How am I scheduling to use in the Covey vernacular, the big rocks? So we're working on relationships, all the things that matter most in our lives. And I had a whole process that I used for years. And then I read your book and you kind of <laughs> upset me a little bit, Roy, because now I had to learn to do something different. Yeah, and and it was it was so comfortable for me to prioritize based. I, I would prioritize, and I've done podcasts on this. On is something important, or will it lose value today if I don't do it? And these were all my to dos. And I would say, okay, well, if I have to do it today, if it's going to lose value, I give it an A. If I should do it today, but it's not necessarily going to lose value, but eventually it will, it gets a B, and then everything else is an optional task. And then I go back and I ranked my A's and my B's. I didn't rank my C's. And I did that for years, but I never got any more time. And there was always one of the five F's that we're getting ready to talk about, one of the areas in my life that was always suffering where another one was just going great. And the process that I was doing never fixed that. And I don't know if I realized it was a problem until you spoke about it in your book, but you added significance to that. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about significance because it really impacted what I do with my day. And I tell you, that was the missing piece of my day. Yeah, the significance calculation changes everything. I wouldn't necessarily say that like I invented it, 
but I identified it in the lives of these ultra performers. And, you know, so in our last company, my wife and I, you know, our team, I mentioned it was like 200 people. We were spending time with some of the elite professional performers in the world. And we're spending time around a lot of these, what we called ultra performers in the Take the Stairs book, in the first book. And we noticed that they thought differently about time. They didn't, they didn't do things like the people would, you know, like Covey would teach necessarily. There were parts of it that they did. And what we realized is that most people were making decisions on what we call era two thinking, which is based on importance and urgency. And Dr. Covey pretty much single-handedly introduced that framework into the world, uh, which was a huge evolution at the time, because before that, era one thinking, you know, time management as a, as a body of work really started in like the 50s and 60s. And it was very one dimensional. It was all about efficiency. It was how do I do things faster? And that was the that was the modality of thinking at the time. You know, it was like the manufacturing era and we come out of the Model T Ford and then World Wars like and, and things are just assembly line and do things faster. Well, Dr. Covey then taught us in, you know, 1989, when that book comes out, Seven Habits, that not all tasks are created equal. And he taught us to prioritize, which was to focus first on what matters most. And he gave us a scoring system where the y-axis was importance and the x-axis was urgency. And that changed the world because it taught us that maybe item number seven on our to-do list need to be bumped up to number one. And Ever since that time, prioritizing or era two thinking has really been the predominant way of thinking. But what we started to realize is that there's nothing about prioritizing that actually creates more time. Like you're saying, prioritizing is actually more like borrowing time. It's just saying, I'm going to do item number seven first, which is valuable. It's not that that's invaluable. That's a valuable skill, but it doesn't do anything to help you accomplish the other you know, nine activities or whatever on your to-do list. Well, that worked in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was written in 1989. Think about the world in the year 1989. We don't have email. We don't have cell phones. We don't have text messages. We don't have social media. We don't even have, like, we don't even have the internet. Like, the world has radically changed. And you can't solve today's time management problems using yesterday's time management strategies because we live in a much more connected world. No matter how fast you go, you'll never be done. You'll never be caught up. That's different than it was in the 80s and 90s, right? Like you could actually finish and be bored. But today, nobody is ever bored. Like boredom doesn't exist in the world because there is a nonstop perpetual flow of things that you can do. And so... What the significance calculation is, is it takes that sort of two-dimensional square and it turns it into a three-dimensional cube. So it more builds on to Dr. Covey's work, which is brilliant, but it, it's kind of an evolution or an adaptation. And here's the, di the distinction. Importance is how much does something matter. Urgency is how soon does something matter. But significance is different. Significance is how long is it going to matter? In other words, what is the impact of completing this task on tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And the significance calculation changes everything. It is how it becomes possible to multiply time. Now, I wish I would have called the book How to Multiply Time. That's what I called my TED Talk, and the TED Talk went viral. And it was very clear, and that's what the book is about. We called it Procrastinate on Purpose because I thought that was cute and fancy and no one had ever heard of it, but it was confusing. It's really about how to multiply time, which is the subtitle of the book, Five Permissions to Multiply Time. And most people, Trace, when they hear me say that phrase or they hear our team say that phrase, multiply time, they think I'm exaggerating or they think that we're, we're using like marketing hyperbole or that we're like, you know, just it's like a superlative but we're not exaggerating. We mean that it is literally possible to multiply time. It is literally possible to create time, which fries everybody's brain because for years we've been told, oh, time's the one thing you can never have more of. It's not true. It is flat out not true. Now, absent the significance calculation, it is true. There's nothing you can do inside of one day to create more time. I can't create more time inside of one day. 
we all have the same 24 hours, which is 1,440 minutes or 86,400 seconds. I can't add time to a day, but that's exactly the problem. Most of us live in a world of urgency, the urgency of today. Most people wake up and say, what's the most important thing I have to do today? But that's not how multipliers think. They don't say, what's the most important thing I have to do today? What we noticed is that multipliers asked a different question. Their question was, what are the things I can do today that make tomorrow better, easier, faster? What are the things that I can do right now? And, and that's the significance calculation. The significance calculation is breaking free of just thinking about today, and it's thinking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so that's how it becomes possible to multiply time, which I can tell you how to do in one sentence. This is the, this is the premise of the entire Procrastinate on Purpose book. It's the premise of my TED Talk, and it's one sentence. So if you, if you haven't been paying attention, you pay attention right now and write this down, because I'm going to teach you how to multiply time, and it's super simple. The way you multiply time is by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. You spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. While there is nothing I can do to create more time inside of a given day, there are a lot of things that I can do. We categorize them into the five permissions. There's five overall buckets. There are five different types of things that I can do today that will cost me time today, but they'll make me time tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's the significance calculation. And it does, it, it changes everything. Yeah, you gave words to an experience that I had years before I found your book. Good friend of mine, Charlie, we would get together on a regular basis, just discuss how his business is going, how my business is going. And he saw all the things that were on my plate. And he came up to me one day and he said, Trace, I'm, I'm worried about your health. You're doing all these things. You can't keep doing that. Something's got to change. And at the point, I wasn't ready to hear. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, thanks for, thanks for caring. I don't have any other way to get this done, so I have no options. Well, he came back and he said, I really think you need to hire an assistant. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to train an assistant, but I didn't vocalize that to him. So every month, every couple of months, we would meet, and he would bring that into the conversation. And I would brush him off and brush him off. And, and, and then finally, he said it one day, and, and I was a little irritated. You keep bringing it up. And I was like, Charlie, I don't have time to train a person. I figure it's going to take me at least the same time I could do it seven times myself before the person can do it the first time. And he goes, finally, you get it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to tell you this isn't going to work. What do you mean I get it? He goes, you finally understand what I'm trying to tell you. You're not going to have to do it the eighth time. And that's when I got it. Yeah. So in brand builders group speak, or, you know, we, we have the focus funnel. And so if you say, okay, Rory, what are the five categories to multiply time? One of them is delegate. And we, we call this the permission of imperfect. And so, and these aren't average people. These are high performing people. But what we're talking about here is not the difference between failures and successful people right? Time management and having a schedule and prioritizing, that's the difference between like failures and successful people. What we're talking about is the difference between successful people and ultra performers, the top 1%. And Procrastinate on Purpose is really a book written for entrepreneurs and ultra performers and people who aspire to be in the elite of the elite because the next level of results requires the next level of thinking always. Well, there's a rule that we use called the 30X rule because whenever we tell someone or ask someone, we say, hey, are there things that you could delegate? Are there tasks that you're doing that you know somebody else could be trained to do? And and 100% of the time, if it's an intelligent entrepreneur, they'll go, well, of course. Like, of course, somebody could be trained to do this. And then when you say to them, you go, okay, great. So why haven't you done this? Why haven't you delegated? They will say one of two things. One is exactly what you said, Trace. They'll say, I don't have time. Like, this is just faster for me to do it myself. Or the second thing they'll say is, I can't afford an assistant. So let's look at the first one first of going, I don't have time. 
And that's what the 30X rule is all about. So the 30X rule suggests that you should consider spending, you should be willing to spend at least 30 times the amount of time it takes you to do a task once on training someone else to do that task for you. So if I have a task that takes me five minutes every day, you should be willing to spend 150 minutes. So that's 30X. So 150 minutes training someone else just to do that one task. And honestly, Trace, I lose a lot of people here because they at first they go, Rory, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, why would I spend 150 minutes training someone to do something that I could just do myself in five minutes? And I always say, you're right. It doesn't make sense unless you make the significance calculation. Inside of the paradigm of one day, it never makes sense to trade 150 minutes for five minutes. But if you make the significance calculation and you extend your time horizon, let's just look at this over the course of one year, okay? So if there's 250 working days in a year, approximately, and it takes you five minutes a day to complete that task, then just over one year, not the rest of your life, but one year, that task isn't taking you five minutes. It's taking you 1,250 minutes. Five, five minutes a day times 250 days is 1,250 minutes. So now the conversation looks instantly different, right? It's not, should I spend 150 minutes to save five? It's, should I spend 150 minutes to save 1,250? Notice how the answer is just as obvious as it was before, but it's the complete opposite of what we thought it was before. And here's what's wild. The task hasn't changed. The person hasn't changed. All that has changed is the leader's thinking. And that's why we say all the time, the next level of results requires the next level of thinking. You can't just keep working faster and have exponential results. There has to be a shift. What got you here as a performer won't get you there as a leader. That's actually something we teach in our leadership training, but it applies here to, to time management as well. And so if I came up to you on the street and I said, oh, Trace, boy, have I got a deal for you. I have a guaranteed investment that you could invest into where I can guarantee you a 733% return. Most of us would think, no way, way too good to be true, completely impossible. Because when you're talking about money, it is pretty pretty impossible or extremely rare. Like usually a six, eight, 10% return is a solid return. But if you were to have evaluate this investment of time, the same way that we evaluate investments of dollars, watch what happens here. So I invested 150 minutes in and I got 1,250 minutes back. Now the net gain is 1,100. So it's 1,250, but I have to subtract the 150 I spent training. So my net gain is 1,100, which means I invested 150, I got 1,100 back. If you divide those two numbers together, it is a 733%. And here's a new term that we invented, R-O-T-I, return on time invested. We believe that the next generation of cost savings will not be as focused on saving money. People are so focused on pinching pennies here and there about where they order their business cards from or where they buy their pens or what's their bulk discount rate they get on paper clips. And meanwhile, they're avoiding the gigantic, massive pile of wasted hours of the most expensive line item in the business, which is salaries, people's time, compensation. And when, when, when a person who's paid $45,000 a year self-admittedly wastes 2.09 hours out of every single day, that costs employers $10,396 per year per employee. 25% of their salary is gone. You could buy your paper clips from the most expensive manufacturer in the world and, and never come close to losing as much money as you will lose from having one employee waste a, a couple hours a week. Like, and so I, I am actually shocked that the world is not waking up to this faster. I mean, we've been talking about this for five years already. And it, in some ways, it feels like it's just starting to kind of catch on because this is what it's all about is saving time is worth way more than saving money. 
Yeah, we recently finished discussing your book in the Rising Tide Mastermind group, and so many light bulbs were going off with people about that, because people were worried about paper clips instead of what really mattered most. Something that came up, though, that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not going to do it justice, you list a whole host of things that we just simply should be delegating off. So uh, yard care, uh, housework, cooking meals, uh, even certain children's activities. So my mastermind group wanted me to ask you, do you really delegate every single one of those? Oh, heck yeah. Okay, talk about that because it's a, it, there's a hard breakthrough thinking, there's no way I can do that. How do I get past that block so I can really allow myself to start doing what I should be doing? Well, there's two sides of this, right? There's the logical side and there's the emotional side, right? The logical side says I can't afford it, right? The logical side says I can't afford to pay somebody $20 an hour to clean my house. Again, it's flawed thinking because here's here's another concept. We call it MVOT, M-V-O-T, the money value of time. All of us have an hourly rate. Every person on the planet has an hourly rate. You might not be paid by the hour, but if you take your total earnings divided by the number of hours you worked, you have an hourly rate. Now, if you make $100,000 a year and you go and you spend an hour cleaning the house, you already are affording it. In fact, you're not paying $20 an hour. You're paying two and a half times that. You're paying $48 an hour because you're either paying someone else at their rate of pay or you're paying yourself at yours. And that's what people don't understand is they go, oh my gosh, I should be doing tasks that are worth $48 an hour because that's literally what I get paid or that's what my goal is to make. So if that's my goal to make, then I gotta go, I gotta take every $20 an hour task and get that to someone for 20 bucks an hour. And then I need to repurpose that time into things that multiply or into things that produce exponential results. This is both personal and professional. Now logically, it's it's almost never cheaper for you to do it yourself. It almost never is. Like, because, you know, even if you make $50,000 a year, that's $24 an hour. It's still cheaper to have someone else do that. And, and I would argue that the way to grow your income is to invest that money to pay someone to do that because you're more likely to reallocate that time and to know how to use that time in a higher value way you're more likely to know that there are certain activities you can do that create exponential reach or exponential influence or exponential results, like gathering referrals, making sales call, talking to past clients, investing in strategic things like whatever, CRMs, marketing. On the personal side, though, a lot of this is more emotional trace, especially for moms. Oh my gosh, mom guilt is such a real thing, right? Like too many moms equate being a good wife to cleaning the house or being a good mom to making homemade cupcakes. Pardon me if I'm overreaching here. I don't think your kid cares if you made homemade cupcakes. I think your kid and the kid's classmates aren't gonna know the difference between a homemade cupcake and a cupcake that you bought at Publix. Like there's not a difference to them. What they will notice is, did you spend an hour playing with them at night or were you busy making cupcakes? That's my personal philosophy. Now, if you love making cupcakes, make cupcakes. If you love doing it with your kids, even better, make the cupcakes with your kids. If you love mowing the yard, fine, mow the yard. If you love it, but make the conscious choice to say, this is costing me money. I'm doing it because I enjoy it. That's what hobbies are, by the way. That's what vacations are. We are aware it's costing us money. We're choosing it because of the pleasure we receive from it. But if you don't get joy out of it, you don't get pleasure out of it, don't convince yourself that it's somehow cheaper for you to do it yourself. It's more expensive. It costs you more money and it costs your happiness. This is the stupidest thing ever. We do it all the time. And I'm a fan of outsourcing everything. One of the things we just did, so we have a nanny. Now we had to ramp up to this, right? You can't go out and hire 10 people. But the first thing we did was we hired a, a VA. Then after we got a VA, then we got then we got a full-time EA. Then we got a marketing assistant. Then we hired a personal assistant. Then we had house cleaners. Then we had a nanny. Now we have a nanny during the day and an au pair who lives with us for nights and weekends. Au pairs are extremely affordable. It's one of the coolest programs ever. It's cultural exchange. 
The reason we have an au pair and a nanny is not to take care of our kids. The reason we have an au pair and a nanny is so that they can take care of the house and every rote, mundane, repeating task that has to happen so that we can be with the kids, so that we can spend time with the kids, so that we can play with the kids. And here's another crappy belief. And I'll say crappy because it's unconscious, but a lot of moms think a good mom doesn't have help. That's a, that's a limiting belief that a lot of moms have. Good moms don't have help. Says who? And if that's the case, let me ask you, how's it working out for you? Like, are you full of life? Are you full of energy? Are you getting a lot of sleep? Are you getting a lot of quality time with your spouse and your kids? It doesn't have to be moms. This could go either way. But, you know, entrepreneurs do the same thing. In order to be a successful entrepreneur, I have to work 100 hours a week. You have to grind all the time, no matter what. Really? How's it working out for you? There are lots of entrepreneurs who work 10 hours a week and make millions of dollars a year. So that's not a recipe for success. It might be a necessary season, which is a concept from Take the Stairs. It might be a necessary season, but it's not the long-term recipe. And so, yeah, I mean, I am a fan of outsourcing everything. And this is why we started a new company a few years ago. We already have 40, 45 people like on our team. We have a landscaper. We have a, a lawnmower. Those are different people. We have someone who just does tasks around the house, hang pictures, like fix broken stuff, which, you know, Lord knows, like, I'm not going to fix anything. I was raised by a single mom who sold makeup. Like, I mean, really? Like, am I going to change the oil? It'll take me 17 hours to change the oil in the car. Like, if I try to hang a picture, I'll put six holes in the wall. Like, it's not saving anybody time or money, and it's going to drive me nuts and my wife. Right. So we've got that. We have the nanny. We have the au pair. We have a personal assistant to help with like, you know, groceries and stuff. We have HelloFresh delivered three times a week. Uh, obviously, we're using Amazon. I mean, we're using, I mean, I have a whole section on my phone for these. We use Upwork to hire freelancers. We use Tackle, TaskRabbit to get like odd jobs done around the house. We use TopTool and Five, Fiverr to hire freelancers. Of course, we're using you know, Postmates and DoorDash and Uber Eats to deliver food when we need it. We're using HelloFresh to have food delivered, Instacart to deliver the groceries. I mean, it goes on and on. Thumbtack is another one that we use for, for handy people. Urban Sitter is another app you can use to hire babysitters. None of this is to avoid like being with our kids. It's the opposite. It's so that when we're done with work, we're with the kids. Someone else is cleaning the house. Someone else is prepping the meal. Some... Now, my wife happens to love cooking. So we have someone do the food prep because my wife is also a CEO of a fast growing multi seven figure business, right? And we got two toddlers. So I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying that our way is right and every other way is wrong. What I'm saying is a lot of people trap themselves into a mental prison of their own construction based upon a stupid limiting belief that came from somewhere else that they've never even thought about or challenged. And it's not about being above certain tasks. I'm not too good to take out the trash. I'm not too good to wipe a toilet. I will wipe a toilet, especially inside of our company. I'm not too good to make a sales call, to make a cold call, to write an email, to do anything. It's just going, if I can get help with things so that it frees me up to spend more time with my kids, my wife, our key leaders doing strategy and building relationships, those are things that multiply. Cleaning the toilet doesn't multiply. You could clean the toilet every single week. You're still going to have to clean it every single week unless you build some AI robot that cleans the toilet for you, that's a task that has to be done over and over again. I'm going to train someone to do that task or better yet, I'm going to pay someone. And it also is a, it, it's also about an, a healthy emotional attachment with money. If, if I have scarcity about money, if I believe that money is my source of security in life, I'm going to have a hard time letting it go. But if I view money as a tool to help me multiply and to help me have more freedom, then it's just, I'm hiring people left and right. We're creating jobs like crazy. Everywhere we go, we create jobs. The more busy work that shows up for our business or for our house, we're creating jobs. We're pumping money out as fast as we can. And what happens, more comes in 
because we're reallocating that time to things that multiply, to things that nobody else can do. You know, if I sound passionate, please don't take it as like, we have it all figured out and and you don't. Uh, it's not that at all. We're overwhelmed still. Like this isn't an insta-cure for all your problems. It it tends to be like you you have bigger problems, right? You just have the problems with more zeros on the end. But what I'm passionate about is I hate when people feel trapped that they can't buy cupcakes from the store because that would make them a bad mom or they can't hire a house cleaner because that makes them a bad wife or I can't hire a babysitter when I'm home because that makes me a lazy dad or, you know, I can't hire an assistant to get the groceries because I'm a stay at home dad and I should have to do that. You know, it's like at the end of the day, what do you want to spend your time on and what multiplies? What can you do today that creates more time or results tomorrow? I love how you put, you've got to give yourself emotional permission. And I don't remember ever reading before your book, how there is an emotional component to where you spend your time. How did you come to that conclusion? The very first time I realized it was, um, I was actually at my old business partner's house and it was a Saturday morning. And he, at the time, had this this really sweet, like three-year-old daughter named Haven. And we had a Saturday morning work meeting and I went to pick him up. We were leaving the house and Haven comes sprinting down the hallway and she jumps and she grabs hold of his leg and she looks at him and she says, daddy, where are we going? And he looks down at her and he says, oh, I'm sorry, baby Haven. Daddy has to go to work today. And she says, no work. Please, no work, daddy. And her eyes have tears in them. And she says, please, no more work. At about that moment, I realized two things. The first was, I'm not sure I'm cut out to be a parent <laughs> ever. Um, now, obviously, we got two kids since then, so that has changed. But th But the thing I really realized was that Time management isn't always logical. In fact, it's much more emotional than we realize. It is our feelings of guilt and fear and anxiety, our desire to feel successful and important and influential. Those underlying emotions actually drive our behavior much more than what's on our calendar or on our inbox or on our to-do list. It's why I feel like I have to spend an hour making homemade cupcakes because it makes me feel like a good mom. But what if I could be a good mom by just being with my kids? That would free me up to buy cupcakes or to have somebody else go pick up the cupcakes. It's not about cupcakes, right? But that's that's a literal example that shows how we prison ourselves to doing trivial things at the sake of we're, we're victim to this emotional prison of saying, I must work 80 hours a week to be successful. You know, I can't do this or I must do this. And most of those beliefs, we've never even questioned, we have never challenged. A lot of times we don't even know they're there. Roy, help me out. My wife's love language is acts of service. So when I'm vacuuming, when I'm putting away the dishes, she actually interprets that as, oh, wow, Trace cares. What should I be doing? How can I take that to a higher level and still talk to her love language? Well, I mean, if it were me, you know, I would hire someone else to vacuum. And then I would reallocate that time to planning romantic evenings together. I would take her on a picnic at a winery or something and, you know, write out 25 reasons why you love her. And I bet you she'll respond more to that than she will to the vacuum. Point taken. Here's a little tip just for us, between us guys here. So only guys. So if you're a lady, you can't, don't listen to this part. But one of the best lines on this comes from the movie Finding Forrester. Have you ever seen that movie? I don't think I have. It's not It's not a great movie, but it's uh, Sean Connery is in it and he's like this old writer and he's mentoring this, this young kid who is like an aspiring writer. And he says this, he says, the key to a woman's heart is an unexpected gift at an unexpected time. Unexpected gift at an unexpected time. So buying your wife flowers on Valentine's Day, okay, fine. That's the minimum. That's what you do to not get fired. What you should do is buy her flowers right now and have them come today on a day, just a day, just because. But again, if I am trapped into going, I have to do the vacuuming in order to be a good husband, I never have the time and the capacity for creativity and for romance and 
because it's just like, oh my gosh, I got a vacuum. I got to hang this picture. I got to pump up the tire with air. I got to mow the yard. I got to fix that leak. Like, and this is what happens, right? And this is what happens is people as their marriage becomes their roommates. And it's not always these roles, okay? But, you know, I'm overgeneralizing. Mom is taking care of the kids and keeping the house clean and running the meals. Dad is working and maybe he's working too much and maybe he's traveling. And then he comes home and he's got, you know, he's fixing a bunch of stuff and they're never together. They're roommates. They, 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 they operate a business, but they don't have a relationship. And that breaks my heart, especially when you go, man, for a few hundred bucks a month, I could solve a lot of these problems and we could actually just go on a walk together. There's no better spend of money than that. Great point. Rory, after an author puts a book out, there's always something they wish they put in. What do you wish you put in to procrastinate on purpose? There hasn't been something that I have have wished that I would put put in there. And I do find what you're saying is usually true. One of the things we teach our clients at Brand Builders Group, by the way, and this is this is different, is we say that you're writing a book should be a conclusion, not a hypothesis. A lot of people write a book as a hypothesis, as like, hey, here's an idea that I think might be worth something. Take the Stairs was basically, you know, the culmination of 10 years, like the first 10 years of our research and career. Procrastinating Purpose was the next five years. We haven't released a book in a few years. So, you know, we went through exiting the company, starting a new company, rebuilding our social media. You know, we launched two new podcasts, but like when we sold the company, we sold our email, our social media, everything, all of the IP, everything was gone um, except for the two books. I, you know, we kept, we kept my two books, but we've had to rebuild. And so, you know, I haven't released a book here in a few years. Well, one's going to come out and it's going to be really, really good. And people are going to go, wow, that's amazing. But it's, it's because we've spent three years already working on it. And it'll probably be another two years before it's actually in print. So for us, a book is a conclusion, not a hypothesis. That's really important to me uh, and my wife as, as writers. And, you know, we're, we're testing stuff out in real life and then we're delivering the conclusion. But in Take the Stairs, there is something that I wish I would have talked more about. And it was the, the concept of seasons. There's a chapter in there called the, the Harvest Principle of Schedule. And we talk about how the metaphor of balance is terrible. We think it's a horrendous metaphor for how you spend your time. The much more accurate metaphor, which you don't hear hardly ever, is seasons. That life happens in seasons, ebbs and flows. And that if you embrace that, you know, versus trying to do an equal amount of things all the time in equal proportion and equal directions. We believe that if you have diluted focus, you get diluted results. And so even the concept of work-life balance, which is impossible to achieve in the beginning, but if you had an equal amount of time spread across equal activities, we believe you'd get the least amount of results in those areas because we think that focus is power. And the way that you really create results is through imbalance. You imbalance all of your excess energy and resources in one direction for a season. We call it a harvest season to create a focus burst of energy where you, you blitz through and you create a big breakthrough. Then you put that on autopilot and everything else on autopilot, and you dedicate 100% of the excess energy and resources into the next thing, and you create a huge breakthrough. And then you put that on autopilot, and that it, it happens more in seasons. I've sharpened a lot of that, especially from having kids. I really wish you know there was more on that back and in, in take the stairs. That's a great question. I've never been asked that question. But as of this point, my big wish for procrastinating on purpose is I wish I would have called the book How to Multiply Time. That's what the book is about. That is that is the, the value proposition. This is one of the lessons we teach people at Brand Builders Group, right? So Brand Builders does one-on-one -on -one coaching for personal brands. You know, So anyone who wants to build their public profile, we do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And one of the painful lessons that we learned from calling the book Procrastinate on Purpose, I was trying to be cutesy and clever. And what we've learned is clear is greater than clever clear is greater than clever when it comes to marketing. And, you know, we called the TED Talk, How to Multiply Time. Didn't even think twice about it. They, they asked us, what's this talk about? We said, it's about how to multiply time. That's what they called the TED Talk. Boom, it went viral. I think if we would have called the book that, it, the book would have done a lot better. 
So that would be my big change for procrastinating on purpose. I wish we, we would have called it a different title. Well, Rory, I have probably six dozen more questions that I could ask you, but I want to be very conscious of your time. Do you mind if I ask you a couple lightning round questions? Yeah, let's do it. Cause I'm, I'm, I, I know we have to wrap it up and, uh, but yeah, we'll do lightning round. All right. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself on your first day as an entrepreneur, what advice would you give yourself? Play the long game, do what you're doing. It will pay off. I mean, the significance calculation is another way of saying, play the long game, think long-term. Much of my life, I've made different decisions than the people my age all the way back from the time I was young. And that's why I was never one of the cool kids. But what's cool now is a lot different than what was cool then. And so I would just say, stay the course, play the long game. Don't worry about what other people are doing. What are some of your favorite books? Oh, great one. Well, um, uh, clearly the Bible and specifically the book of James, which many people believe was written by Jesus' brother, James. It is my favorite book of the Bible. Separate of that, I mean, it, it's 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 hard because I've read a ton you know, if you say favorite books, there's a there's a bunch of them. If you say the books that have most changed my life, like have most altered my life, I'd say Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University changed my life. Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Eker changed my life. Um, the Go-Giver by Bob Berg. 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino. What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter. I quote that book and Take the Stairs. Those are probably the most impactful books. Like they've changed my thinking and changed my behavior. When Hollywood makes a movie about Rory, who plays Rory? <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I think it's Ralph Macchio or Chachi from Happy Days. Uh, I get that all the time that I look like Chachi from Happy Days or Ralph Macchio or Scott. Yeah. So Scott Bayo or Ralph Macchio. Final question. You now have the ability to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? I mean, it'd be Jesus. Because I think, you know, there's a part of Christianity for me that's, you know, spiritual. There's another part that's historical, like actually studying. Uh, this is a book that should be on that list uh, that truly, truly changed my life. There's a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I'm a very analytical, logical person. And, you know, there's a whole part of this whole Christianity, spirituality, like what, like dude raised from the dead, like, you know, people getting swallowed by whales and, you know, world created in seven days, like how, like my mind couldn't process it. And that book case for Christ really helped me specifically about the, the historical evidence and the corroborating documentation of the life of Jesus being, you know, a real person on earth you know, first of all, you got to just ask yourself, was Jesus a real person? Yes or no? And if you look, the documentation is overwhelming that he was a real person that was on earth. Then the next thing you got to kind of decide for yourself is you got to decide like, was he like the son of God? And I think the ultimate conclusion I came to there is he said he was the son of God, which means to me only one of two things. He either was who he says he was, or he was an insane, crazy person. He's not just a good guy. Like a good guy wouldn't say they are the son of God. They are either completely off their rocker or they are who they, and there's been people in history who have said they are God or they are, you know, from a different universe or whatever. Most of us deem them as crazy. So to me, Jesus is either who he says he is or he's crazy. Then you got to say, okay, did he die? Lee walks you through that. And then you go, did he disappear from the tomb all by himself? You know, so I think that is the historical part, but then even the emotional part is going, man, you know, Jesus was a radical. I mean, turn the other cheek, uh, pray for those who persecute you, give your money away, be nice to the sick and the needy, you know, spend your time with children and widows. I mean, especially back then, those ideas were freaking radical, radical, you know, ro Roman culture was brutal. And so for him to come along, I mean, that's just like, I mean, I, where did it come from? So uh, anyways, that that's who I'd spend my time with. I'd want to like know about some of that stuff. Well, Rory, I appreciate you spending a little time with us today. And we learned a whole lot more about not only your book, but some ways that we need to start thinking about things a little bit better. Thanks for coming on the show.
Well, Trace, thanks for having me. If y'all want to follow me more, you go to RoryVadenBlog.com. That's, you can catch up with all my social media and podcasts there and books. And, you know, I would just say, no matter who you are, your life has a purpose. There is something significant that you're supposed to accomplish. If you're still here, that means you still have time. So use that time, be fruitful and multiply. Scout Up Nation, so much fun when I am able to do that. What a what a great guy. What a genuine guy. I was able to clarify a, a lot of things that I wanted to ask him as I was reading the book. And some of the questions that you heard me ask directly came from the Rising Tide Mastermind. They knew I was interviewing Rory, and they wanted me to ask a couple of those questions. So how cool is it? that we have a direct line to the person that wrote Procrastinate on Purpose. And by the way, Take the Stairs is amazing as well. Those are two books that I would highly recommend. And the simple fact is we only have so many hours in the day. And when we start thinking about are we doing the right things with those hours and the dimension that he added, which was just huge for me, was, is there something that I can do now that will allow me not to do it in the future? And now that gives me time back. Again, we still have 24 hours, but now we can be a lot more purposeful with those 24 hours. And Rory, I want to thank you for introducing me and the Rising Tide Mastermind and all of the people that are going to read Procrastinate on Purpose because of this podcast. Thank you for all the hard work you did, and thank you for laying that out in such a logical platform. I started this podcast with talking about you really make changes in your progress when you challenge yourself, when you're making yourself a little bit uncomfortable and you have a higher end goal in mind, or you're not satisfied with the way things are, you want to make things the way they can be. I hope you're looking at those items. I hope you're constantly going through your day-to-day and saying, what can I do better? What has a time value? What has an importance value? What has a significance value? And we all have definitions for those, thanks to Rory. and. I think every day is an opportunity for us to continue to get better. I know many of you have started since you've listened to this podcast, since you've urged each other to do this, to try something a little bit different each and every week so you are constantly increasing what your productivity could be. You're doing more meaningful things. And more importantly, you're learning all the way while you're doing this. You know, no stranger to this concept is James McDonald, and he, of course, tries to help us with a brand new James's challenge each and every week. So here's James. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional, drop by drop, is... Perform a dissolved oxygen study on a boiler deaerator in feed water. Is the deaerator effectively reducing oxygen? Are you feeding too much oxygen scavenger because of a poorly performing deaerator? What are the proper procedures for performing a dissolved oxygen study? How long should the oxygen scavenger feed be turned off before conducting the study? There are many factors to be considered before starting and during the study. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. Nation, this is a really fun challenge. This is something that we do with new employees is we have them run samples on cooled samples and samples that are straight from the boiler and compare the results. And you will see some are non-affected and some are very affected. 
So I think the next step to that is why is that? And I think we've covered that in some previous podcasts. So you can go back and you can search through the Scaling Up H2O archives for those answers. But when you start treating the tests that you use as a tool, just like Rory talked to us about money, those tools can allow us to do what we need to do a lot better. Nation, in my excitement talking about Rory, I realized that I spoke about the six Fs and we never came back to it. So I want to go ahead and tie that up for you, this Scaling Up Nation. So Rory says that we, we have so many areas or so many buckets, he actually calls them glasses in his book, that we can spend time in, different areas in our life. So those are faith, fun, fitness, family, faculty, and finances. And you can tell he's got a love for alliteration. And I wanted to ask him, because when I read the book, in my mind wanted to challenge that that's not it. And I actually really tried to figure out what another F was. Of course, we never came back to that in the interview, but I did leave you hanging there about what the six Fs were. So now you know. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope that if you have an idea for scaling up H2O, you don't keep that locked up inside your head. Get that to me. Let me know what you want to hear on the next Scaling Up H2O podcast. We've got two very easy ways for you to do that. Both of them include you going to scalinguph2o.com. And one way, you can go over to our show ideas page and type out what your idea is. But what I hope you do is you record your voice on our leave voicemail feature and you record yourself asking that question. I love playing your questions and answering those on our Pinks and Blues episodes. But if you have somebody that you want me to interview, let me know that too, because I love meeting new people. I also love bringing you these podcasts and you will have a brand new one next Friday. Until then, have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, we have just started a new group within the Rising Tide Mastermind. I am so amazed at how successful and how well-received the Rising Tide Mastermind has been in our community, and we are starting a new waiting list for the next group. If you want to get on this waiting list so you can start with our next group, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if this is the right group for you. And then after you and I have a brief conversation to make sure the group fits for you and you fit for the group, we can get you on that waiting list. I can't wait to talk to you. Remember scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.